This is a special bonus episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. In this episode, I am joined by award-winning journalist Haley Mason, who has covered the events surrounding the killing of Ahmaud Arbery since May of 2020. Mason, who reports for Atlanta-based TV channel CBS 46, recounts for jury duty the events of a momentous week in the federal hate crimes trial of Travis and Greg McMichael and William Roddy Bryan, a week that saw a jury impaneled, opening arguments made, witnesses called, and both the prosecution and the defense resting their cases. Haley speaks to me about the volumes of evidence presented by the prosecution supporting their case that it was racial animus that drove the defendants to kill Ahmad Arbery. We will be back with my conversation with Haley Mason right after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Haley Mason, thank you so much for joining us. Please tell us about yourself and about your role in covering this case, both on the state level and on the federal level. Thanks so much for having me. I'm a news reporter in Atlanta, Georgia at the CBS affiliate there, and I cover courts, I cover politics and general assignment news, but most notably, I also cover the Ahmaud Arbery murder case and the subsequent trials. I have covered this since May of 2020 and have covered the trial from start to finish. Can you tell me what your experience has been of the difference between the state trial and the federal hate crimes trial? I think on its face, the key difference is this case is all about race and the motivation behind the killings. The Department of Justice is no longer trying to prove that Ahmaud Arbery was murdered. That was proven on the state level. They are trying to prove that they believe he was murdered because he was a Black man. And the evidence speaks to that at incredible levels. The Department of Justice is bringing up years and years of evidence, text messages, social media posts, phone conversations, conversations at the grocery store that the defendants have had over the years with people where they've expressed disdain for Black people, expressed racial slurs, uh, racial animus, if we're speaking legally, against African Americans. And there is a level of specificity here on just how much hatred, if you will, existed for Black people from each of the defendants. And so that is one thing that is the biggest, most stark difference from the criminal trial. It is noteworthy that in the criminal trial, race did not come up much, definitely not on the witness stand. The prosecutors actually steered away from that. It came up more in the pretrial hearings, but when it got down to the actual criminal trial, the prosecutors did not speak much about race at all. They didn't question witnesses about race. The the goal there was to prove that a murder had been committed and they were eventually successful in that effort because each defendant was charged with felony murder. But now 
we're looking at a very swift, a very succinct, and a very focused court case here on the federal level that is moving very quickly. I think they just started opening jury selection on Monday. Jury selection was finalized Monday. Opening statements started Monday, and it is now Friday, the weekend, and both sides have rested. We're going into closing arguments on Monday. This case is wrapping up within a week. Would you take me through the narrative that the prosecution presented to the jury through the witnesses that they called? And let's begin with a witness who also testified in the state case, but in the prosecution on a federal level is used on a much more limited level. And that is Matt Albenzi, who lived across the street from the under construction home that Ahmaud Arbery was witnessed walking on. Yes, certainly. Matt Albenzi was called by the Department of Justice as a witness for the prosecution. He was one of the concerned residents of Satilla Shores. He too joined in searching and, and reporting about this unknown trespasser that was going into the house under construction. He witnessed a number of people, he said, in the area, sometimes going in and out of the house, learning from the homeowner, Larry English, primarily. Matt Albenzi testified that he too joined in the search one night for this man that they thought was possibly unlawfully trespassing through the home. Matt Albenzi testified that he put his pistol in his pocket to go outside to see who the young man was going through the home under construction. One key difference though, the prosecution asked Matt Albenzi, did you take your gun out of your pocket? He said, no. They asked, why did you bring a gun? He said, it was my right. They said, did you try to confront this person? He said, no. Did you try to chase him? No. They said, why didn't you try to confront him? Why didn't you try to chase him? He said, not my job. That was one of the first times that the prosecution drew a clear difference between the McMichaels and William Bryan and the other residents of Satilla Shores. Of course, all of the neighbors that were in that Facebook group seemed to be concerned about the perception of crime in their neighborhoods or the reports of crime in their neighborhood. A lot of them wanted to catch this person that they thought was trespassing in their community, at least on that property. The difference is no one else tried to chase or threaten or shoot the person outside of the McMichaels. And that was what the prosecution made clear in having Matt Albenzi come forward again as a witness. I will say he appeared to be a bit of a reluctant witness. Of course, he seemed to be in an allyship with the McMichaels, at least initially. Those were his neighbors. He too wanted to find the person that might have been suspicious, he said. He said he did appear to be suspicious to him, and he was referring to Ahmad Arbery at that point. But there was a line that he did not cross, which was removing a weapon from his pocket, chasing, threatening, and certainly not killing anyone. And that was one of the first big points the prosecution made. Albenzi also made the point that Ahmad Arbery didn't have anything in his hands. He didn't appear to be a threat. And that was another reason that he didn't pull his firearm from his pocket. Yes, that was in response to a line of questioning from the prosecution. Uh, they are trying to remind or introduce to the jury 
that this is a man that did not have a bag in his hand, a phone in his hand. His hands were empty. And so without even saying the words unarmed, they described that Arbery was walking without any belongings on his person other than the clothes that he was wearing. Unlike some of the other people that walked through the house, they named a couple of times that the white couple that walked through the house under construction actually had a canvas bag that could have been concerning because it could have been used to bring or take something. And even uh, the investigator testified that it could have had tools in that bag or collected tools in that bag. Again, there was no proof that anything had been taken from that home, but that was one of the noticeable differences is that on each occasion, each time that Aubrey was seen in that home, and I believe it was about a total of four times that he was caught on camera, he never had anything in his hands. Another witness, and perhaps one of the most significant witnesses for the prosecution, was an FBI intelligence analyst named Amy Vaughn. Can you tell me about her testimony and her role in the prosecution case? Yes, certainly. Amy Vaughn was an intelligence analyst for the FBI, and she worked primarily in the terrorism division. She spoke about her work doing extensive internet research to uh, find terrorists activity online. And she was able to help the Georgia Bureau of Investigation organize the immense amount of online data that they had collected from social media, from cell phones, from any type of cloud activity. One thing of note is that Miss Vaughn was not able to access Greg McMichael's cell phone because it was so heavily encrypted. The FBI was not able to break into Greg McMichael's cell phone. They had to go into his iCloud to get backup data to read some of his messages. And I do believe that maybe it's one of the reasons we didn't hear as much about Greg texting or Greg McMichael having a lot of cell phone activity because the data in his cell phone was limited. Travis McMichael, on the other hand, analyst Vaughn did testify that Travis McMichael was by far the most active on social media, on Facebook, on Instagram. William Rodney Bryan was pretty active on WhatsApp, the internet messaging app. I say all this to say a lot of this evidence came from the words that they typed and wrote on social media about disdain for Black people or an effort to be what the prosecution would say is vigilantes. So let's start with the evidence of vigilantism and evidence of a a double standard about trespassing. What evidence did Agent Vaughn put forward about any of the defendants' proclivities towards vigilantism and of a double standard that they had towards trespassing? I'll speak to the double standard uh, issue on trespassing. This was interesting. Analyst Vaughn was able to collect photos and video of Travis McMichael, who enjoyed hunting, trespassing in order to hunt. She pulled up a picture and showed the jury Travis McMichael standing in front of a no trespassing sign while hunting. There was then a video that was played where Travis McMichael says he's going to go hunting and take advantage of the other hunters being lazy, essentially, and not being out of the woods. And then there was a private property that he wanted to hunt on. And in the video, it says, well, there's private property and then there's private property. But today we're going to go hunting here anyway, essentially. And they again go onto someone's private property to hunt. And so the argument that the prosecution was trying to make in bringing that evidence up is that Travis McMichael was not 
as concerned with trespassing as much as he was concerned about Ahmad Arbery as a black man being in a place where Travis McMichael didn't believe he should be. And that's something that Travis McMichael said in the trial. He was in a place that he wasn't supposed to be. And that's one thing that the prosecution was trying to bring home to the jury is that Travis McMichael trespassed himself to suit his hunting desires. But when Ahmaud Arbery was in this house under construction, it became a problem. And they tried to argue essentially that trespassing wasn't the problem. It was Ahmaud Arbery as a black man that was the problem for Travis McMichael. And that was the point that the prosecution was making there in those pictures and in presenting that video. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. In the text messages, in the Facebook exchanges, the WhatsApp exchanges that were presented as evidence, there seemed to be a link between an impulse towards vigilantism, particularly on the part of Greg and Travis McMichael, and their racial animus. Can you take me through some of the pieces of evidence that showed that linkage between those two things? I think a lot of the evidence that pointed to vigilantism started within that Satilla Shores homeowners Facebook group, where the residents and homeowners were posting reports of possible break-ins, reports of crimes. Some of it seemed to be rumor and conjecture. No one really pointed to direct crimes often, but at some points there were people who may have had a car break in a lot of times with an unlocked door. A few people did legitimately have their guns stolen. Travis McMichael did earlier that year. So a lot of the neighbors felt that they needed to take their safety into their own hands. But most notably, Greg and Travis McMichael shared thoughts that, you know, we should quote, arm up is one thing that Travis McMichael said. When someone else posted about possible crime happening in Satilla Shores, Travis McMichael responded saying something to the effect of they're playing with fire on this side. And so that was one thing that the prosecution tried to lay as a foundational set of piece of evidence that there was this support of vigilantism. There was another post that Greg McMichael made just five months before Ahmaud Arbery was killed Greg McMichael posted a Facebook status that said a gun in the hand is worth more than an entire police force on the phone. And the argument that was made clear in the criminal trial is Greg McMichael stood in the bed of his son's pickup truck with a revolver in his hand, but had not called the police. And so that stood out as someone who's covered this trial from start to finish as a damning piece of evidence that there was an actual Facebook post of Greg McMichael giving a nod to putting a gun in his own hands and taking matters into his own hands rather than calling a police force and waiting for them on the phone. So those were just a couple of early pieces of evidence that the prosecution laid out that stem from that Facebook group alone. Yeah, I saw one other tweet that you put out there where Greg McMichael responded to a Facebook posting that someone's surfboard had been stolen saying, quote, maybe I'll catch the sorry SOB up here in Georgia. We still hang horse and board thieves. Woe be to this sticky fingered bastard. Haley, if you could also take me through some of the 
text messages, Facebook posts, and other private messages that show repeated evidence that each defendant displayed hatred and disgust for Black people. Uh, where do we begin? Uh, it seemed as if the prosecution brought out layers of texts. It's almost as if every platform that Travis McMichael used the prosecution was able to pull numerous text threads and conversations where he spoke in a disparaging way about Black people, even to the extent of wanting them to die, a saying that he wanted Black people to die. One example that the prosecution brought up early on in one of the myriad groups of text messages was a conversation Travis McMichael had with a friend. It, it seemed to be a woman friend that he was texting with, and she was eating zucchini noodles that she called zoodles. And they joked back and forth about the use of the word zoodles. And she said something to the effect that this is white people. And they joked about the word zoodles. And Travis responded, I'd rather say zoodle every day for the rest of my life than to be a N-word. And so that was just kind of a tangent, really. But it spoke to just how often he expressed his dislike and what the prosecution would say was hatred for Black people. And he continued on in other conversations with one of his closest friends from high school, one night there was an activity at a bar and his friend told him that the bar was a terrible night essentially because there were so many black people everywhere even though the friend used the n-word travis mcmichael responded saying they ruin everything that's why i love what i do no n-words in sight that was travis mcmichael referring to his job on the boat at metzen marine and that was later confirmed when his former supervisor took the stand that he worked pretty much away from Black people, and that's why he enjoyed it. At one point, you tweeted about an exchange between Travis McMichael and another friend of his, and the friend said that his dad is slap-happy and doesn't mind jail in relation to going after someone who had allegedly stolen something. Would you take us through what Travis McMichael's response to that was? Yes, Travis McMichael was in a conversation with a friend and that friend and his dad, something was stolen off of their property. And the friend told Travis, I'm worried about my dad because he is slap happy and doesn't care about going to jail. And Travis said, in response to that, Travis McMichael said, that's what we need more of. My old man is the same way. Hell, I'm getting that way. And at some point someone said had to make an example. And then Travis continued on saying, I keep my shotgun loaded with high point fives, it will rip someone to shreds. And when Annalise Vaughn read that, there was silence in the courtroom because that was the most telling that he knew exactly what was in his gun when he got it, when he left the house, and what would happen if he fired it. It will rip someone to shreds. And later the medical examiner and the firearm expert testify on how big the bullet wound was from Travis McMichael's shotgun and that it was fired in such close range that it ripped, rolled, and seared Ahmaud Arbery's shirt that went from a white t-shirt to almost completely red, covered in blood. And so to hear that text message read aloud, it showed a different level of awareness from Travis McMichael that he knew exactly what was in that gun and the potential that gun held if he pulled the trigger, and that it wasn't just a gun that accidentally went off in the tussle between him, he and Ahmaud Arbery. I found that 
combined with the next tweet that you offered, particularly chilling. And could you take us through the story of Travis McMichael responding to a Halloween costume that someone had posted on social media? Yes, it was several years back now. The prosecution pulled up an image of a guy that went to a Halloween party that Travis McMichael and his friends were commenting on. This guy came to the Halloween party dressed as the late Trayvon Martin, who was shot and killed in Florida by George Zimmerman. The guy in this, quote, costume had black face. He painted his face black to appear to be an African-American. He put on a white hoodie and he carried around a bottle of Snapple juice and Skittles, a bag of Skittles. That hoodie that he wore also had a big red stain painted on the front of it that appeared to be blood. And that stain, the agent testified, was to mimic the gunshot that pierced through Trayvon Martin. Well, she mentioned this testimony and this picture because Travis McMichael and a friend joked about this guy dressing in this way at a Halloween party. And Travis McMichael said that this guy was costume of the year. And he said, heck yes, or hell yes. Travis McMichael thought that the guy dressed as a deceased Trayvon Martin in blackface with blood on his hoodie had the best Halloween costume of the year. The combination of those two pieces of evidence tell us exactly who Travis McMichael is and were prophetic in what he would ultimately do. I'd like to move on to the evidence of William Roddy Bryan's racial animus. Can you take us through a few of those pieces of evidence? Hearing about William Bryan's text messages and his thoughts on Black people was new this trial. You remember in the actual murder trial on the state level, there was this narrative and this push to frame William Bryan as less culpable, less involved, not racist, not like Travis and Greg McMichael. Well, the prosecution on the Department of Justice's level is saying he too harbored these negative feelings about Black people. And so they brought up a number of conversations between William Bryan and a woman that lives um, overseas. It is presumed that she is the mother of his daughter, or at least a woman who cares for the daughter. This woman would text William Bryan on WhatsApp, the internet messaging app. And the FBI analyst testified that it was an annual joke for the woman to wish William Bryan a happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day because she knew that he did not like the day. And that conversation was flooded with racial slurs and derogatory language about Black people, where some of the language I won't repeat, but she would joke saying that, I hope you took off the day to resume your grand marshal position in the MLK parade. And William Bryan would call it the monkey parade and speak very disparagingly with racial epithets about Black people who celebrated Martin Luther King Day. There was another conversation where they learned that the daughter had a Black boyfriend, and that was something that William and the woman said that the daughter must not care about herself, so why should they care about her? The woman said that the daughter knew that that was the only thing she would not accept her dating a Black person. 
And so the two continued to just express their anger and disapproval of the daughter dating a black man. And the daughter went on, which I didn't tweet about this, but she went on to share how much she loved the young man and that his race is nothing but a color, that his mother worked at the hospital and was trying to help her get a nursing license and that they cared about her and she would not let his race deter her from someone that she loved. And William Bryan and the woman in the text seemed to be disgusted by it and they were not happy about it. And so there were more text messages where William Bryan used the N-word in his own phrases of racial slurs, speaking negatively about Black people and lodging a lot of stereotypes about Black people. One thing that is different, William Bryan, at least through what the prosecution presented, did not express a desire to hurt Black people in the way that Travis and Greg McMichael did. But they did highlight very clear evidence that he did not care for African-American people. There was a point made by the prosecution in not just saying that William Bryan did not like Black people and often used racial slurs to, to speak about them, he associated them with criminality. That's one of the tenets of the prosecution's argument, that the men associated Black people with criminality, and thus that is why they associated Ahmaud Arbery with having to have been a criminal. They not only showed text messages from William Bryan, assuming that a Black person may have committed some crimes in, in a Facebook post, but in his police interview, they asked William Bryan, why did you join in the chase of Ahmaud Arbery when you see that the McMichaels are yelling after him? What made you do that? He says, I thought that he might have shot somebody or something or stolen something. I didn't know. I didn't know what was going on. And they left it at that, that he assumed that Ahmaud Arbery running from the McMichaels meant that he must have done something wrong or shot someone. And the agent said, I was confused because there was no evidence of a shot or any gun being fired before Ahmaud Arbery was killed. And he said he was confused as to why William Bryan thought that Ahmaud Arbery just, because he was running away from the Michaels, might have shot someone. There's one last piece of testimony that I'd like for you to talk about, if you would. There was a testimony of Carol Sears, who met Greg McMichael back in 2015. And Greg McMichael drove her and her daughter to an airport in Jacksonville after court. And while driving, he went on a rant. Can you tell us a bit about what Greg McMichael said and the purpose of it in the prosecution's case? This was the prosecution's last witness, and it was quite compelling. It showed the level of work they did to find Carol Sears and, and bring her back to Brunswick all these years later. Carol Sears was from New York, about 35 minutes outside of New York City, and she actually was in Brunswick for an unpleasant reason. She and her late husband were victims of a crash, a DUI crash, and her husband died at that crash. She came back to Brunswick in 2015 because she was working with the DA's office to try to revoke the parole of the driver that crashed into them and killed her husband. So that's the background on why Carol Sears was ever in Brunswick in the first place. She was driving from Florida when this crash happened. Carol Sears and her daughter 
went back to Brunswick for a court hearing about her late husband's case. Greg McMichael was a former investigator for the DA's office, but at the time he was still in that role. So he was driving Carol Sears and her daughter back to Jacksonville, which is about an hour away from the Brunswick airport. So Carol Sears thought that she could emote in the car ride that the civil rights leader Julian Bond had just died. He was in Atlanta, a civil rights leader, was one of the coordinators of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, and the Southern Poverty Law Center. And she said she felt terrible to learn that Julian Bond had just died. Greg McMichael said, terrible? He said, I wish that guy had been in the ground years ago. All these blacks are nothing but trouble. I wish they all would die. And Carol Sears said she was shocked. She said Greg McMichael continued to go on a rant about his disdain for black people. And she said on the stand that Greg McMichael's rant about black people was terrible and had such meanness and ugliness about a whole race of people. She told the prosecution that she was shocked. She said, my daughter kept kicking the back of my seat. My daughter was sitting behind me in the car and she was kicking my seat because I'm sure she thought I was going to say something to him. But she was kicking me to say, don't argue with him. And so she said, I wasn't going to say anything to him. I was just so shocked. We were so afraid and uncomfortable that we wrote the entire 30 minutes of that trip in silence and never said another word. And he didn't say another word. What was interesting is Greg McMichael's defense got up and asked, did you not write a thank you letter to the DA's office following that ride to thank them for how you were treated? Carol Sears said, I don't recall. And that was the end of the questioning there. But she said they did not know him. He did not know them. It was what should have been a professional trip that turned into what she considered to be a very uncomfortable and ugly rant about Black people when she was pretty upset to learn that Julian Bond had died. Also to note on a trip about her deceased husband, and he was an investigator for the DA's office at the time. As you mentioned at the top of our interview, only one of the defendants called a witness, and that was uh, called on behalf of Greg McMichael. Can you tell us about that witness testimony? This witness testimony from Evelyn Kofer points back to one of the more curious parts of this whole narrative on who was committing the alleged crimes in the Satilla Shores community. There was testimony given in the murder trial that there was a man underneath a bridge nearby, the Fancy Bluff Bridge, that could have possibly been a suspect in the crimes. They they assumed that it was a homeless man that McMichaels had driven by once. Evelyn Kofer was brought to the stand for Greg McMichaels' defense because she testified that she never met the McMichaels. She lived in Satilla Shores for 48 years. She never met Roddy Bryant either. But she did see the man that was under the bridge. The man was supposedly a, a white male that appeared to be homeless that they suspected could have also been committing the crimes. So Greg McMichael's attorney played a 911 call. It was a call that Greg McMichael made to a non-emergency line to say that there is a man under the bridge. They saw him around July. They thought he could be responsible for some of the crimes that had been committed in the area, or at least the alleged crimes in the area. And he was a white man. And so that was supposed to work for Greg McMichael's defense that he not only called police for Ahmad Arbery possibly trespassing, but for possibly a white man that could have been behind some of the crimes as well. 
or the Department of Justice rebutted and made the argument that Greg McMichael's call about the man under the bridge was in no way similar to the urgency he placed on trying to pursue Ahmaud Arbery. The DOJ noted that Greg McMichael did not call 911, that he called a non-emergency line and left a message requesting that someone call him back. They say it was a totally different type of call. And they then argue, the DOJ argued that McMichael had lied to police several times and that this was not a fair comparison. I have just one other question before we wrap things up. Much was made during the state trial about the composition of the jury, the racial composition of the jury. I believe it was 11 white people and one black person on that jury. And then it was also predominantly female, that jury. Can you tell me anything about the racial composition of this jury? Yes. One thing that's different this time around is the jury is a little bit more diverse. In the criminal trial, the family initially was very concerned that out of all of the jurors, only one person was Black. Well, this time around in the federal trial, there are three Black jurors. There is a Black man who is sitting on the front row taking copious notes each time I've watched him in the jury box. And there are two Black women on the jury. One of the women is a little older and so has um, a different set of lived experiences, I would say, given her age. And there are a number of white female jurors and then a few white male jurors, but a much more diverse jury this time. A number of them have been taking notes. A number of them have seemed to be pretty attentive when I've been in the courtroom uh, watching some of the testimony. Well, Haley Mason, thank you so much for your time. We look forward, hopefully, to having you back after the closing arguments and after the jury reaches its verdict. Thank you so much for having me. Great talking to you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. That concludes this bonus episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery. You can find Haley Mason on Twitter at at HaleyMasonTV. That's at H-A-Y-L-E-Y-M-A-S-O-N-T-V. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracon. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.